How do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. I'm thrilled today to be joined by somebody who's obscenely young and incredibly talented. It's a pleasure to welcome Josh Berry. How are you, Josh? I'm very well, thank you. I apologise for my age. (laughs) I've got two daughters who are both older than you, and they say stuff to me, and I have no idea what they're talking about. And they do that that kind of, oh, Dad, for Christ's sake. So, you know, you may have to humour me a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It moves fast. That kind of thing moves up. My brother's seven years younger than me, and he says things about TikTok that I just don't understand. I know. Things move on. And I know you do an awful lot of impressions, you know, sort of social media stars and YouTube stars and things like that. So feel free to do them. They will go whizzing over my head, unfortunately. <laughs> but don't let that deter you because our listeners will, will pick up on them. I think I first became aware of you maybe six, seven years ago when you were suddenly appeared on TV <laughs> at Wimbledon yeah. doing tennis impressions. Uh, which was of particular interest to me because tennis is my game. I absolutely love tennis. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and I, I briefly represented Middlesex as a junior. I mean, that's going back about 455 years. But, you know, I, it's my game. That's really impressive. Not really. But, but anyway, so that's another story. Let's have a chat about tennis impressions because you were, what, 16? Yeah, I was. Gosh, that's such a long time ago. I was. I was 16 years old. And I was just obsessed, you know, I love the sport of tennis. It's something I've been obsessed with since I was about 10 years old. Yeah. And I was obsessed with, you know, at that point there was a sort of big fall. And I was, you know, I'm still to this day such a huge Andy Murray fan. Yeah. You know, despite his voice, which is obviously <laughs> not always the most engaging thing in the world. <laughs> I'm such a good guy and great. It was just this... Um, this fascination and this love of all these guys that made me, I just listened to them and listened to them. And I've always sort of mimicked people. And, and I, I remember I think the first time I did it, I did Nadal. I mean, I've done Nadal for years, but it was just that sort of, I always used to crack me up how he'd finish an interview and go, well, uh, thank you very much. And that catch for, I just thought was really funny because he'd always say it. And, and in many ways, I, I, I sort of looking back on it, I suppose because tennis players are so formulaic very often in what they say, because English is very often their second language, it made it easier because it gave you a really easy sort of entry point because they just have all the same phrases. But yeah, I did that and, and we put a video online. I, I didn't do it. I didn't sort of upload it myself. Someone else uploaded it on my behalf because I sort of found it all a bit embarrassing, to be honest. Yeah, it, it was it was weird. There was huge media exposure. I met Nadal from it and we did a video. I met, I met John McEnroe that year. Oh, wow. On ESPN. And then the host of ESPN sort of behind... The cameras was like, oh, you know, John, Josh does a really good impression of you. And McEnroe kind of looked me up and down and was like, yeah, well, whatever. Which I just thought was so great because I was like, this is so true to, you know, his really grumpy way of talking and being and just angry all the time. And I, I thought that was that was funny. But um, yeah, that was sort of the entry point, I guess. That's a wonderful impression. There are people who used to do kind of cod, just people shouting and, and abusing. Uh, there were, I think there was even a record out by a guy called Roger Kitter, was about 100 years ago, with a, you know, he used to wear a headband and just shout. But that's a beautifully modulated impression. It's, it's like a sort of Kermit the Frog 
you know, because you're right, it's sort of really sort of quite low in the throat. I mean, whoa. Uh, and, you know, that <laughs> the one thing I find interesting with, with the Americans is so instead of saying like talking, you know, like Joe Macro, so like, you know, talking. Yeah. So it becomes like talk, talking rather than talking. And so, yeah, but, it, but it's that sort of, it's quite near Kermit the Frog. I, I had a joke on stage where I used to say, you know, it's just like Kermit the Frog's being punched in the throat. I mean, come on. And, and that's, that's kind of where you get it from. But yeah, it's, it's very distinctive, which helps, doesn't it? I mean, it is. We've talked, or certainly I've talked with other people on this show about the categorization of impressions because quite often you'll find one impression in the same in the same little pocket of sound as another you mentioned kermit and john mcenroe do you you use that as a technique you know sort of think oh hang on that's got that falls into this nice little area where i already do you know say louis theroux yeah are the ones that you that that feeds from or, or that you feed off of that yeah, I, I think they, I think they do. You know, I, I mean, I've heard. Uh, yeah, John Coleshaw talked about this on. He was on Countdown, and I think he calls them vocal neighbors. Uh, and, I, and I think he's. I don't know whether you found this, but I've sort of found the more impressions I've learnt, easier it is to learn someone else because you're right. There are families, aren't there? There are families of voices, and you're like, okay, they're a bit like this and a bit like this, and then I can sort of, you know, pick and choose. I definitely found that with Louis Theroux. I don't know if you know the comedian Phil Wang, but Louis Theroux and Phil Wang are very similar in that, you know, sort of Louis's got that sort of quite sort of, you know, soft thing going on there. And then, you know, other times a little bit more like that. And it's that sort of, you know, ooh sound that Phil Wang also kind of does and that Phil Wang's kind of like, hey. And so Louis Theroux's like, ooh, and then <laughs> Phil Wang's like, hey. So, yeah, yeah, you can almost sort of get like different vowel sounds, I feel like, and then and then suddenly you sort of jump from one to another. But, yes, absolutely, in, in response to your question. I'm going to come back to the tennis because it's this is endlessly fascinating for me. <laughs> you do Federer, mm. and I've not heard a great Federer till I heard your Federer, and you also do Djokovic. Yeah. Now, the thing about those two accents is, I mean, Federer comes from, a, I suppose, a slightly Germanic almost South African thing going on. I think his mum's yeah, yeah, South yeah. African. Djokovic comes from Serbia and he has a, an Americanized accent, but with little, almost English vowel inflections. Mm. So how do you go about, I mean, take us through Federer and take us through Djokovic and, and tell me what you're looking for in each of those. Well, the, the weird thing with Federer is that when I kind of first started trying to do him at 16, you know, my voice had broken, but it's kind of got a bit lower over here, which really helps, you know, because the thing with Roger is that, you know, he has such a sort of deep voice like that. You're right to think that, you know, it's, um, it's sort of Germanic a little bit, you know, sometimes the way that, you know, Roger likes to speak. It's it's it is weird, isn't it? Because it is almost, you're right, that there are those influences and maybe a bit of South African, but it's all, I kind of conceive of it as he's almost accentless that's kind of how I think I just kind of try to take his voice on its own terms maybe that's because at that point I couldn't do any other impressions so I just do you know whereas if I were approaching it today I would probably think well who's he like and you know but yeah it's it's such a fascinating very sort of international voice isn't it right well because he speaks about 15 languages so you wonder quite where he's picking up all of his vocabulary and all of his vowel sounds from mm. what about Djokovic then because that's a very distinctive yes. accent that he's got was there a way into that or again was it just a case of 
in your case, are kind of just picking that up and, and running with it rather than over overanalyzing it? I think I probably, I mean, I, I certainly analyzed it all less than I would now if I were approaching it. But I think that, I think there probably was a bit more of an easy way into Djokovic in that for him, I felt as though a lot of it was about the, the sounds you make around the, the words. So for him, there's a lot of like, well, and uh, I think that... Uh, and it's always that sort of, you know, the sort of uh, stretching here and uh, with my, uh, you know, and, and always with that. And, and you know, the words are important as well. If you could, I, you know, it's always a good one to like have him mispronouncing things or talking about, he always loves talking about, oh, you know, in my spirit and my body and my game and my personality and, you know, all that stuff. But I think, yeah, the biggest thing with him is just the work you do around it rather than kind of the, the, the words themselves, yeah. As a, as a former impressionist, I have to say that the hardest thing for me always was accents where I can't quite get a handle on where they're from. You know, if you would do a cod Russian accent, you know, like this, everybody talk like this, blah, 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 blah. And that's easy enough. But then suddenly you get somebody like a Djokovic or a Federer. And there's, it's so hard to pinpoint where it's coming from. And and I, I was found, I, I had no reference point. You do Rafa. Now that's, I suppose that starts with a, you know, blah, 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 Spanish, Spanishy thing going on. Probably an easier one, I, I'm guessing. And Boris, you do Boris Becker as well. Yeah, I yeah I do. I think Boris Becker's probably maybe a little bit more of a caricature because yeah. I used to sit down and Wimbledon was on and make my mum laugh because if obviously this is a podcast, so you won't be able to see this, but just his sort of mannerisms I thought was so funny how he'd be like, well, you know, I think that Novak needs to play well. And, you know, the opera I think, the close I think, the opera I think, and then even more on the <laughs> That's one of those impressions where the physicality informs the voice rather than the voice being the thing that you start with. Because Boris is so distinctive with all those, the, the eyes blinking and all <laughs> yeah. that stuff. Let me, let's go back. You talked about doing stuff post-voice breaking, but I'm guessing you were a, a, a mimic before that were you the you know again it's a question i've asked a lot were you that you know the kid at school everyone's crowding around josh he's doing great voices he's doing the teachers he's you know he's doing personalities or were you much more reserved than that it's it's weird because i definitely did do that i definitely did and i used to love it i used to love doing impressions of (laughs) so it's just it's just Cracking me up because I'm remembering one of the first ones I did. It was my, it was with my geography teacher, and we did it at the end of the class. And he really dislikes it, even though I'm very, I'm proud of that impression. It's a good one. I won't mean anything to anyone who's listening, but you know, sort of had a voice like that all the time, and it was it was brilliant. And it, I knew it was good, but yeah, I don't know. I am quite quiet. I, I'm quite. I can be quite introverted. And I think I probably was a little bit at mm. school, but also. Yeah, I think people probably did listen when I did the impressions because I would occasionally sort of wheel them out and people enjoy them. But I think it's that that aspect of being a performer, isn't it, where maybe sometimes you're a bit more of an observer than you are a participator. And I've always maybe sort of preferred a little bit more to watch and make judgments and try and create something funny out of that because I've, probably at school I was a bit more of an outsider yeah. than, than someone sort of in a in a group. I don't know if your experience was similar to that. Well, or- yeah, I mean, I... I- tended only to do impressions to my friends you know so i had mm. a little coterie of of mates and i would do the teachers i would do uh richie benno is one of the things we, we could spend the whole day you know mm. doing richie benno what a marvelous what a marvelous uh, lesson that was that kind of thing it never occurred to me that i was an impressionist i was just somebody who could you know i was a mimic in those i was, always was a mimic 
Let's just stay with your school days and you're coming through those awkward teen years, by which time, of course, you're already a TV star. But were there impressionists that you looked up to who helped inform your own approach to voices, people that inspired you? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the whole British set, kind of the ones that I was most aware of, you know, were Rory, Alistair and John, for sure, in, in the UK. Rory a bit less, actually, because he was less on the TV when I was young, but particularly John, because he had the, the impression show with Culture on Stevenson, and, and I'd seen all of the, you know, the Alistair McGowan, uh, Alistair McGowan's big impression on YouTube and all that kind of stuff. So that was great. I, one guy I love, well, I've got, there are two other people. One is Frank Caliendo, who I think is just amazing. He's brilliant. Uh, but just in terms of his own, I mean, his impressions are obviously great, but his, his on-stage act that I was just, I just thought was, and I've never seen impressions well, I've seen some people do impressions that well. The other guy who I just watched recently, who I who I look at and think, God, that could really help me on stage, is Eddie Murphy, who, you know, like when he came out in Delirious when he was 22, which is yeah. unbelievable. You know, coming out doing James Brown and, and, and Michael Jackson. And those routines, I thought, were just so well worked. So, yeah, def- definitely that. Interesting you mentioned both of those, because I think what they, apart from their amazing vocal talents and other talents, mm. it's their dynamism their energy their attack when they're on stage you watch caliendo who just absolutely goes for it with this enormous you know he almost doesn't take a breath he just goes plowing through these brilliant voices with with such energy and, and as you say eddie murphy from a very young age had that mm-hmm. same extraordinary power on stage i'm guessing you quite academic because you went on to oxford Obviously, plenty of opportunities at Oxford to exercise your performing chops, as it were. Mm-hmm. Did you get involved in, you know, the reviews, in the plays, in acting? What were you What were you doing there? I mean, I was just in the library. I was really boring, actually. I uh, I, I played a lot of tennis there, which I which I loved. But I, yeah, I did. So I didn't think I was going to be any sort of performer, like, like you said. You were like, oh, I never thought I'd be an impressionist. I thought it was so fantastically unlikely that career would befall me that I, um, yeah, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer for a really long time. Actually, right until the end of uh, just after I finished university, and then I did a, a clip with, with Andy Murray, which gave me a lot of nice exposure. And then from there, started making money and you know, doing stuff like that and making this a viable career path. But yeah, no, I had no, uh, no ambition to to perform i mean i'm very glad that i do now because i think it's really fun and i love that creativity and but yeah not at all i was i was very bookish and well i think like quite a lot of people i was just you know yeah in the library for a lot of the time like a boring yeah (laughs) did you do a law degree no i i I read uh, philosophy and theology uh, which was intellectually stimulating if not uh (laughs) if not with a job at the end of it that isn't a priest well, for what, it, what it's worth, I was a lawyer, and you've saved yourself a lot of heartache and misery because I did it. For, I did it for seven years, and I loathed it. I loathed every minute of every day. A lot of people I've spoken to over the course of making an impression have been clearly set on a career in in showbiz, in using their voices, and you know they were able to identify pretty early on that this was a thing that they were good at and the thing that they felt they could probably make a go of. Mm-hmm. You're saying something else, and that's interesting particularly to me because I had no designs whatsoever at, yeah. at your age or even 10 years later. I mean, it took me till 
I was 34 to even go on a stage. Mm. So it's, it's interesting that even though you had this talent, it never occurred to you that actually, you know what, I can, I can leverage this and this can be the thing that I do. Had you not done any performing before, and even in a formal way, had you not been in front of an audience? Well, so, so I used to do, when I was 16, I used to, as a result of the sort of internet clout I had, I used to go and do like corporates, which is obviously great. I mean, obviously, as anyone in the in comedy industry or is impressionist will know, corporate is where you make some tasty money for doing a gig that isn't always the most fun. But yes, that's that's where you make the cash. But I was I was doing it for you know like fifty quid, <laughs> so it wasn't you know so they were making a lovely swift buck out of me. These terrible people. Um, so yes, I had some experience of being in front of an audience in that someone would tee me up doing impressions and be like, so, you know, it makes me cringe so much thinking about it now, but so, Andy Murray, what do you think about blah, blah, blah? <laughs> and I deliver some pre-prepared rubbish. It's weird, though, because I, I look back and I, I absolutely love writing and I love writing comedy and I love sketches. And I used to be absolutely obsessed with that mention of Web Look and the Armstrong and Miller show. And I used to redo those sketches. I used to, like, perform them with my friends and stuff. And so I've always been interested in comedy. It's just, it's probably a self-belief thing that I thought, but yeah, but there's no way that that could ever be my job. It's not that I didn't want to do it. It's that I hadn't let my brain go there, if that makes sense. It does. Absolutely does. You mentioned Mitchell and Webb there, who I think influenced a lot of people through the period when they were incredibly popular. And of course, they've gone their separate ways and both done remarkably well. I once did a voiceover with Webb. Yeah, I had to be Mitchell, which was probably the most daunting voiceover I've ever done. Have you ever had to do an impression with the person that you're doing or that person is connected to the person you're doing? Yeah, so I had a couple of well, it's funny because I did so the incomparable Rob Bryden who is another person here? Sorry, him and Steve Coogan, also people like I hugely look up. We were doing Andy Murray's uh, a charity event, uh, one of Andy Murray's charities back in 2017. And uh, Rob does an Andy, and we and we were both stood on stage with Andy Murray, all of us speaking like Andy Murray. And I remember Rob saying, "Oh no, this this is like some sort of awful nightmare version of the Bee Gees, and I don't know what's going on." Yeah, so that was fun. And, and Andy is great and really took the joke and was like, oh, why is everyone doing impressions of me? What's going on? Which is great. And I, the other one I did was, um, I don't know if you know James Acaster. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So off, the Off Menu podcast, I met Ed Gamble. I've never met James Acaster, but I did my James Acaster to Ed, which was, which was amusing, a little bit daunting. But I think... Yeah. I don't know if you find this kind of when you're when you just start doing the voice, you kind of forget who you are. I know it sounds a bit pretentious to say that, but you just sort of go into it and, and the nerves kind of go. But yeah, that was fun. Just, you know, speaking like James, I got so weird, weird voice from Kevin. Yeah, man, fair play. <laughs> he's such a, he's such a weird sounding. I don't think about that enough. How, how unbelievably weird James's voice is, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you've got that. Absolutely down. It's and it's a great impression. Also, one that other people aren't doing, not yet anyway. You know, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was nice when you get that head start. You talked about doing voices and and losing yourself in them. <laughs> As you're doing a voice, are you picturing the person you're doing? Are you trying to almost channel an aspect of them or a look of them? What 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 are you? What's your process? 
Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, because I think to a certain extent, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I'm I'm good at impressions is because I've become obsessed with these people. I I, fi- I normally find the people I'm doing impressions are really interesting, and I want to just. John Coulter says, like he calls it, like downloading the voice. Yeah. But I managed to get to that by just being, you know, enamoured with these people. Like Gordon Ramsay, I've been watching so many old Gordon Ramsay takes of late, and just just hearing him abuse chefs, I love it. I just, you know, hey, big boy, what's that? Okay, not good. Wow, Jesus. So that helps, and I think it's because I've become so obsessed with these people that yeah, you do almost kind of take on their skin, and you can kind of ad lib as them as well. And I know <laughs> I'm aware that this does sound again a little bit pretentious, but I remember doing that as Russell Brand and sort of ad libbing and sort of channeling that you know sex obsessed <laughs> person, or at least the caricature of him, and just sort of thinking, finding it easier. So, so I guess in a sense, yeah. I mean, the process is just. You just go to that part of your brain that's clearly downloaded that caricature and you just kind of live through it. But, I mean, we were talking about the physicality of Becker earlier, which is really interesting. Some impressions, I find it so much easier to just fall into Acaster or Russell Brand because they're so physical and they're so physically idiosyncratic. Whereas, like, you look at... Yeah, same thing with Trump, same thing with Boris Johnson, but some people like Rhys Mogg or Prince Harry, for example, I find it harder because you've got no idea... Where are the sort of mannerisms? We'll come on to that because uh, I think hooks, you know, the things that you just try to find that, that start you out on a voice, I, I'll, we will come to that. I just wanted to mention this to you. Uh, there used to be a saying that impressions were kind of a, a sincere form of flattery. I mean, I'm not surprised Andy Murray takes it well, you know, but, uh, you know, I used to do Andy myself. And I, you just imagine <laughs> Andy as you know, a guy who can take it. I did a few things on the, over the years where we were taking the, the piss out of certain personalities and they took umbrage. And oh, yeah, really? I, I won't name names, but there were situations where, where that happened. In your case, you talk about being enamored uh, with these people. Do you think then that you wouldn't be able to do an impression of somebody you despised? I mean, surely Trump is not in your list of, uh, you know, he's not on your Christmas card list. No, that's that's no, that's a that's a good point. I mean, I don't like Trump. But maybe yeah, maybe enamored is is the wrong word choice. Maybe interested in or fascinated by is probably the better one. Because like, I don't really wouldn't say I like Reese Mogg either, but I I find him occasionally funny and also very interesting. So yeah, I think I think that's probably I'm misrepresenting it. But that, but it also it's kind of like that weird. It's kind of like having a crush on someone. Do you know what I mean? In the sense that like. Your perception of them in your mind is one thing, but actually meeting that person is, can be radically different. So what I think of as Gordon Ramsay or James Acaster, they, they have very little relation to you know, how they are in real life. I've seen your Acaster among many, actually, on, on the internet, and I think you do that with great affection. Yeah. But I guess if you're doing Trump, are you, do you use your act and your, you know, the stuff that you do on social media to try and ev- eviscerate people like, Trump, you know, to, to use your ability to take him off to expose him. To be honest, I kind of look at people like Rory and see how well they do that. And you know, Rory does eviscerate Trump really well in that way. The thing that I've always found most helpful and kind of probably a direction I'm kind of going in a little bit more as a performer and stuff is trying to satirize these people, but from sort of one step removed. So that the 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 the, the the name on my Zoom thing, Rafe Hubris, is one of the characters that I do. The like sort of the, the head advisor to the Conservative Party, and and the, the idea is that 
you know, you're showing what an incompetent, arrogant moron this person is and implicitly kind of satirise Boris Johnson and, and Michael Gove and people like that. Whereas I, I find it hard to do that kind of straight as Boris Johnson. If I'm saying, oh, look, I'm Boris Johnson, I feel as though I wouldn't be able to do the satire as well. But Rory does a great job of it. So, I mean, it's it's... Maybe it's an age thing. I don't know what the reason for that is. Maybe it's because he's a little bit older. It's more conceivable that he sort of could be Trump. You mentioned Russell Brand. And you do a very nice bit about Russell Brand with his two different voices. Could you take me through that? Because I want there's something I wanted to raise with you about that. And the first voice that I did with him is sort of him back in the back when he was everywhere and in the sort of mid-noughties. You know, and he was a bit more sort of breathy like that, mate. And sometimes his voice went like that. Ooh! You know, that sort of thing. You know, compared to the sort of nowadays where it's a bit more tired and that and a bit more like, oh, I've got two kids and everything. And hello, and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. It's odd how people's voices can age, but it, it's the same thing with John McEnroe. I mean, you know, like back in the 90s, John McEnroe used to be like that. It was super high. And then gradually over the years, it's sort of a little bit lower like that. And you sort of end up here. So I always find that a really fascinating. Because, you know, on the trip, they always talk about that, don't they? They always talk about Coogan. Coogan and Brian like, oh, you're doing old Michael Caine. Yeah. And this young Michael Caine. I just, I, thought, I love that. I love that detail. The two points, really. One is that no impression can ever cover all the colours and all the ages of someone's voice. So you, you kind of have to... F- pick one don't you and mm. you know you hope your audience has also cottoned on to that you know that particular stripe of that person you're 24 so your voice probably you know as an impressionist anyway has changed from not broken broken but but even you also mentioned earlier that actually your voice does change and it's certain you know everyone's voice changes over time my voice is a lot deeper than it it used to be mm. did you approach a voice and think do you know what this doesn't work with my natural pitch because i'd say your your natural pitch is somewhere in the middle middle just above middle it's it's mm. you know so you but you do a very good boris now boris for me is which i use my my low register for what are you doing with boris to accommodate him within your natural pitch no, I don't know i mean i, I kind of maybe make him a little bit more because that because you what you just did there's a really good I think that gets his poshness a bit more than I do. Uh, you know, whereas, whereas mine is, uh, you know, sort of, uh, it, it does, it does go a little bit lower. Uh, uh, and um, and um, I'm sort of struggling to think what the end of the sentence uh, will be. And then uh, remembering, uh, you know, it, it, that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know whether um, whether I'm finding a slightly lower, because there, there are definitely people for, you know, whose voices are way too low, like Terry Wogan, like I don't think I could do like like uh, Peter Serafinwitz does an unbelievable Terry Wogan or Rob Brydon does such a good Ken Bruce and you know those are probably two voices I look at and I think gosh yeah that, those are two Michael Gove actually great example of that he's too low for me I can do an impression sort of but he's too low for me to know that I'm getting it whereas I think Boris Johnson I can just about but yeah I'm, I'm probably having to capture the higher end aren't I I think what you're doing so well there is you're capturing his rhythms Mm. And that's just as important. Impressions, to me anyway, they, it's not just about can I do the accent, can I match the tone. It's it's a lot of different things. Mm. And it brings me on to something else, which is when you're doing stand-up, mm. do you find that there are impressions that don't need to be 
accurate. Your impressions are great, but you, there must be impressions that aren't great that in, in your own mind. <laughs> well, because we're all the same, aren't we? we, yeah, we no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, we sometimes go on stage, you're trying to sell a voice for the purpose of a joke or a, or a routine that you know isn't great. I used to do routines with, I don't know, Gary Lineker and Harry Redknapp or whatever. And my mm. Lineker wasn't great, but I needed him to feed my Harry Redknapp. You know, well, you know, Harry Redknapp, blah, 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 blah. So how do you deal with that? How do you work with voices that you know not at your tip-top accuracy, mm. but, you know, you, you want to, to lever them, shoehorn them into your act. I think, to be honest, on stage, I kind of caricature all of them up, actually. And so, you know, right, right here, I'm probably trying to be a bit more accurate. But if I was doing Andy Murray, you know, because sort of accurately, Andy Murray, you know, sort of quite a sort of sharp, you know, very, quite enunciated voice like that, you know, but if I was doing it on stage and I was like, oh, I'm Andy Murray, oh, you know, that's funnier. And so, yeah, I, I think I probably do that for all of them. But there's, I always think there's a very funny thing that Stuart Lee does so well, where he's sort of doing an impression and it's not, it's not even trying to be accurate, but it's just a completely like, oh, oh, look at me, I'm this person. <laughs> and and I, I, I think that's funnier than, than anything that, you know, a, a, an accurate impressionist could do. I guess it's, yeah, it's trying to find something funny with the voice. And, and some, like with, I did a routine as Prince Harry and saying like, oh, you know, yeah, times are hard for him, but he's hardly going to be on the checkouts, is he? And like, so al allowing Prince Harry to sort of be like, a checkout woman, like, you're right, my love, would you need, do you need any help packing? You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, I found with, so, so uh, quite an interesting one, Dara O'Brien. I have so much fun doing this one. But the best thing I found with Dara, and this is, to be fair, it's, it's probably Alistair McGowan's initial intuition, so I'm probably riding in off the back of that. Yeah, maybe doing a bit more of it in terms of making it more caricature. But I just thought if, you know, if, if, if you just do that for the whole time, you're like, oh, there, there, I can't understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I could milk that for about at least a minute. And then audiences really enjoy it. And that, well, that's quite a waffly answer, but that a really definite conclusion for you there. But <laughs> I think probably on stage, you can afford to be less accurate. You And actually sometimes the caricature or the cartoon is the better option. Mm. But I guess when you're doing radio or even podcasting, where accuracy is key, you, you've been on Dead Ringers, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I did a couple of Dead Ringers, yeah, in uh, 2018. Did you feel uh, more pressure to really deliver accuracy? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, it was stressful. Yeah, I remember I did it, it was my birthday, and I... I mean, there were, yeah, it was a great experience. The whole team, great. They're all brilliant. They are so brilliant. And, you know, John Jam Ravens is amazing. Deborah's amazing. Uh, Lewis wasn't there that week. It was, it was just me, John, Deborah, and Jet. I did feel a bit stressed, to be honest, because I was like, oh my God, they're all so good. I have to be in that ballpark. And I think as a result, I probably didn't play with the voice as much, you know, in the way that some, like, um, Lewis. McLeod is the king of, you know, and that he does with John Burko or, you know, all his Jeremy Vibe. But he, you know, that's how he always, I, I love that. And, it's and then, great. And then we will find out. I think it was because, you know, I was really young. Sorry, I was, I was 22 at that point. This was a couple of years ago. And I was very sort of wet behind the ears and, and 
you know, I didn't have the confidence to think, okay, well, you, this writer's written this script, but I'm actually going to play with it a bit. Yeah. Well, maybe I ought to have done. But yeah, it was stressful. And I think, I, yeah, I, I was really, really eager to just be as accurate as possible because I don't want to be the, you know, the... Uh, the thumb sticking out. Well, I was talking to John on the show this week. He was talking about how accuracy is an element, but not the key element, that, that he felt that whatever you do with your impression, you need to bring something to it, that you need to add something, some defining tick, some some odd little inflection that sells it. And also, of course, in terms of Dead Ringers, you want to hang on to that voice. <laughs> you know, Lewis does a magnificent Trump and Farage, and, and so does John. And, and John kind of doesn't do those voices on the show generally. I know he does them sometimes because Lewis has made them his own. So yeah, I just wanted to go back to something else that you mentioned earlier about Stuart Lee. You took that on the chin, really, that He's a, he is a bit sneery. <laughs> but the thing is, Simon, I'm, I'm a bit sneery as well. <laughs> I think I, uh, I'm very willing to acknowledge, I think, because I, I think on stage, particularly impressions isn't, a lot of it is stand-up, sort of what I, what I do, and impressions kind of makes up probably about half of the creative work, because I do a lot of satire stuff as well. I know they're sometimes linked, you know. Yeah, so I think probably I often use impressions to sneer at celebrities <laughs> who I dislike. And so, yes, so I, I, it's, it's probably a bit high and mighty of me to, to have a go at Stuart Lee for sneering. Although he is the king of sneer, of course. Well, I, I mention it because I, as my stand-up days, used to come across a little bit of high-handedness towards uh, impressionists. The idea that what we're doing is a bit of a party trick and really we're not working for our laughs to which i <laughs> i always used to say well we've still got to have jokes you can't just stand there and do a voice uh, or do voices for 20 minutes because after five minutes the audience realizes that you've got this ability and they're thinking all right well i you know i found that quite amusing but now entertain me with a gag <laughs> there is that pressure isn't there you you can't just go up there and assume I'm just going to do 20 voices and, and get off. Now, sure, sure. Have you come across that at all on the circuit? Is that oh, um, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, yeah, there's definitely that sort of idea of the purest type of comedian. Yeah, I think that is a little bit arrogant because you can't... Sp I mean, look, there, there, are, there are tropes that all types of impre well, impressionists fall into, musical comedians fall into, loads of different people fall into, but there are also uh, embarrassing and lame tropes that a lot of stand-ups fall into in the... You know, that classic young young stand-up line of, oh, hi, I'm such and such, and I look like this because my dad is this and my mom is this. <laughs> and, you know, so I think we can all judge a type of comedy based on its worst bits. Yeah, of course we can. But, you know, at its best, it's amazing. But, yeah, yeah, you I mean, you definitely do. You're right. You, yeah, you definitely need gags. You definitely need variety. But I feel a sort of reluctance to sort of identify purely as an impressionist because of that prejudice, I think. Yeah. I think I'd rather kind of people saw me as someone who was a comedian who who did impressions. Because, yeah, that definitely does exist. I, I guess the question is, to what extent are you putting the voice before the comedy? And if you're putting the comedy before the voice, then great. And if you put the voice before the comedy, then maybe that's not quite the best thing. I don't, I don't know. The only time I got a, an encore at the comedy store, the com compere who I won't name came on and said, well, you know, what are you clapping for? He's, he's only copying. I thought, shit, <laughs> room. I heard that in a dressing room and, and railed against it. But to be sitting you know, behind the scenes in the dressing room while someone 
takes the piss out of what you've just done because the audience happened to like it. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty tough to take. I mean, I feel like the comedy industry is so, there's so much cattiness and so much cloak and daggerness because, you know, fundamentally, because a lot of it's full of narcissists who hate the limelight being taken. You know, the MC is thinking, oh, God, Simon did well, but I should be getting all the praise. Let's slag him off. <laughs> there was that where before you went on, someone to go, oh, you know, have a stormer. And you come off and you storm it and they go, well done, mate. And as soon as you left, you know they're talking about you behind the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you go, yeah, but why is he getting laughs? He's shit. How did he get on telly? You know, that kind of stuff. Anyway. But it is catty and it, it's a shame because I think there's room, there's room for everyone if they're good but also like you know stand-up isn't made for stand-ups i think that's a big thing people forget you know we're not creating an act so that we can we can please loads of other comedians you're doing it so that you can please an audience absolutely well i always used to say to people when they did that thing with you know well you're just doing voices i say well they're laughing so it's comedy i I don't you know i don't really have to justify what i do or how i do it if they're laughing i'm funny um okay well we've done that bit (laughs) let's move on (laughs) Go back to process for a second. Well, you have an incredible turnover of new voices. And I guess that's partly because of the way that you're on social media a lot and you constantly need to refresh it. You can't keep plowing the same furrow with the same voices. First of all, how do you find your targets? What is it about a target that attracts you and makes you think, I'm going to go for that, I'm going to try it? And then take me through your process. So what, what you would do to try and get a handle on that new voice so it's odd because it's a lot of it's kind of like project driven but before lockdown i was really sort of thinking oh man uh this guy would be great to put in a routine so i couldn't do hugh grant for example and then i was like i I do this bit where i sort of talk about what type of posh i am and how there's like a posh spectrum between like an odious really posh awful made in chelsea type person and then a more apologetic sort of Hugh Grant in Four Weddings and a Funeral type thing. And I remember thinking, oh, if only I could do Hugh Grant, that would be great. And I heard Rob Brydon do him on the trip. And I was like, oh, that's such a good one to have. And I really wish I had that. I really ought to try and learn that. And from there, I just kind of become, yeah, like, kind of like I said before, a bit like obsessed with them, really. Because I, I, I like Hugh Grant. I think Hugh Grant is incredibly debonair and interesting. And I particularly enjoyed watching him with all the Levson stuff, I thought that was really fascinating and how he was a big, a big player in that. So I just sort of watched that and, and watched a few of the films and, and just continually parrot the voice. So, you know, all of the sort of, uh, gosh, crikey, uh, fancy that, you know, just endlessly. And my poor girlfriend has to sit there and listen to me go, uh, uh, well, uh, as I look into in, in your eyes, uh, uh, gosh, no, not that. Um, and then, you know, she became very tired of it very quickly. <laughs> but my, uh, yeah, both key women in my life, my mum and my girlfriends, I just do it all the time until it eventually sticks. It, you know, it's like that 10,000 hours. Obviously, it's not 10,000 hours, but 10,000 hours thing or the athlete thing, just hit 1,000 forehands continually. So that's kind of how I would do it. But then other times, other times it's a bit more natural. I mean, I discovered yesterday that I could do Andrew Cotter you know, the, the commentator, yeah. you know, that very sort of dour Scottish accent there, Andrew Cotter, thank you, the players lining up there at the start line. And, and, I, <laughs> and I sort of thought, that's weird because it's so annoying because I, I haven't tried to do that one, whereas so many others I try so hard to get, like Michael Gove, just, yeah, not, not at all. But uh, I mean, there's always this assumption that, oh, you can more or less, you can do anyone. 
my agent, she'd say, can you do, oh, you know, they want someone to do sound like X. And I go, yeah, of course I can. And then I go away and listen to, <laughs> listen on YouTube or something and yeah, just yeah, try yeah. and pick up some, some tips and, and work out how to do the voice. But of course we can't. Mm. There are limits to the things that we can do. Is What accents stump you What or what tones do you find you can't get near? Or is it a case of, bugger all that, I'm going to find a way in? I think I probably do have that second attitude a bit more. But I've heard Deborah Stevenson talk interestingly about this, and I think her explanation is probably the closest to how I would conceive of it, in that she says, you know, some people you get really quickly, other people you have to shelve, and it takes three, four, five years, but then eventually you've got them. And I kind of found that with Russell Brand. I kept kept trying to do Russell Brand, kept trying to do it, and then eventually I got him. So I, I think that's probably my optimistic but maybe maybe not maybe i'm being a little bit overly optimistic and ambitious but in thinking well okay i might not get them now but ultimately at some point in my life hopefully i'll be able to get them but the thing that i struggle with yeah definitely right now is is depth i think like real depth like a terry wogan type voice or or something like that you wouldn't be trying a morgan freeman or would you give that a shot no so so yeah that's that's definitely completely out of my range i think morgan freeman i just can't get that i think john does him well i think yeah, Obama as well, I sort of struggle with. But it's, it's those people, and I see some people online just absolutely crush those voices. But yeah, for me, you know, it's, yeah, it's too deep. It's definitely too deep. Yeah. Like Reece, Jacob Rees-Mogg's a good example of someone who's like, I think he's actually got a very high voice. And it's meant that people, maybe like John and Lewis, so I was able to do that one on Dev Ringers because I don't think they really worked on that one as much. Maybe it's slightly too high for them. Mm. You know, I sort of found as though Reese Moore was sort of, you know, rather like that. And it was very useful being, you know, quite a sort of young, high-voiced young chap. When you're young, you can do some, can't you? And then you lose some, probably. And then when yeah. you're old, you can do others and young people can't. Wait till you get to my age and you'll be able to do Morgan Freeman. And no one will know who he is by then, but uh, what the <laughs> hell. You mentioned your girlfriend and your your mum. Yeah. Do you think it's important to have a touchstone? You know, somebody you trust when you're throwing a voice out, you're toying with a voice. I know that when I was a performer, I don't do it now, but I used to go occasionally think, I really want to get this voice. And I go around the house and go to my wife, what do you think? And she'd just look at me like, yeah, piss off. I mean, I really don't care. (laughs) It was that kind of, because she became weary of my, you know, this constant battle to to knock a voice out. And And she'd always say, don't trust me anyway. I don't know. Do you trust the people around you to give you an honest appraisal of how close you are to a voice? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think in some sense, as the person who's arguably spent the most time with the voice, you ought to trust yourself to a large extent. But, but so my mum is quite a harsh critic in a loving way, but a harsh critic of my impressions and will say, she'll, she'll say, oh yeah, that's, that's quite good, but you haven't maybe quite got this or quite got that. So I trust her, whereas my girlfriend's a bit nicer. But again, I think probably gets a bit more tired of it, whereas my mum will continually listen. So yes, I so I had to try and prepare a load of voices for, for Spitting Image a while ago. And she was my point of, are these good, are these not good? So yeah, it's funny because it's always been that ever since, ever since probably the first one I learned to do, which was Johnny Vegas when I was about 12. Yeah. And I, my voice hadn't broken. I think it helped because he's got that weird sort of high thing but um yeah she's always been the the point for me when you're listening back to stuff that you've 
put online or something that you've recorded or even when you're listening back to something you've done on uh, a radio show Mm. can you always hear josh Mm. and it's a question i again i put this to one or two of my guests in the past because when i listened back to myself there were probably only three voices i thought if i didn't know that was me i wouldn't know that was me if that Mm. makes sense every other voice didn't matter what the audience was doing how didn't matter how they were reacting i thought ah ah, shit i can only i can only hear me are you able to stand back can you be objective yeah i think i think i would say something very similar to you actually i think there are probably about three or a very small number of voices that i think i do dead on and the rest i can hear myself for sure I say I can hear myself. I can hear that it's not the person, if that makes sense. So in theory, it could be someone else doing an impression. But I think it's a very rare thing to fool yourself <laughs> when you spend so much time with that voice. Yeah, you have to be... Like, like I think probably for me, Andy Murray is that, in that I've done it for so long, and I was I, such a big fan. I know all. I know the landscape of his voice inside out, whereas a lot of people, you know, you spend a couple of weeks learning them. And yeah, it's a good impression, but... You couldn't do them in every format, you know. What are you working on at the moment? What voices uh, are you trying to nail down right now? I've been sort of writing a few, uh, like a satirical series at the moment, which is has some impressions in it, but it's mostly that's not taken up a lot of my time. I'm trying to... I got Lewis Capaldi recently, which was good. I was pleased with That's a good young one. I don't know. It, it's the difficult thing, isn't it? Because you, you, you're thinking about commercial payoff and you're thinking about you know, wide appeal versus for me, sometimes it's just people I find interesting. So I was watching like Jordan Peterson online the other day and he's got such a sort of distinctive voice, but I don't think he's particularly well known enough for it to be. Yeah. So it's difficult. I mean, Rishi Sunak will be a good one, but yeah, just anyone who comes into government and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a revolving door. Well, it certainly will be, I imagine in a few (laughs) months. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Unconsciously, hear a voice and just start doing it you perhaps don't even you know you're someone's just doing something on the telly i i used to do that i don't do it anymore but someone's just talking and i just start parroting it not with a view to anything just because that was in my nature do you do that i think i probably do i think mimicry is so enjoyable because it's i always think it's such a cool thing if you're watching if i'm watching like a louis theroux because I love his voice and his intonation so much. I, whenever I hear him say, you know, is, is that the sort of thing that you do a lot? I, I, I just love saying that afterwards. You're like, I don't know, is it really weird? And I just, I can't help it because it is fun. But some voices you maybe get a bit bored of. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I do often do it with friends, I think. It probably is going on behind the scenes and you're not, you're not really thinking about it but whatever your brain's clearly analytically you know yeah doing, doing yeah. that voice why is that what a weird evolutionary quirk it certainly is i i can only speak from personal experience there's just some odd urge to reproduce a sound that you're hearing i was always i was probably more fascinated with accents than i was with impressions as a kid you know i used to trial you know, how, how to do Welsh? I, I tried to do Welsh accent. I don't know why, but it doesn't matter. I loved it. You know, and it, it was something about the sound of it, the music of it, that yeah. it entertained me. I wasn't really doing it for anyone's benefit 
to entertain any, anybody else. And I guess all impressionists have that urge. But also then you, when you take it on from there, I've come to the realization doing this podcast that I was a mimic more than I was an impressionist. Because I think once I look at people like John, John Culshaw, mm-hmm. Alistair McGowan, I've spoken to them, uh, Rory Bremner was a guest as well. They had that ability to absorb a voice, but then they were forensic about the detail. Why can I do that voice? What is it about each voice that enables me to do it? And and I'm going to nail it down, make sure I get all the quirks. John was saying, interestingly, that he likes to, to make impressions smaller. You know, you keep, you dig down until you've actually, oh, you know, you've polished it to this sort of fine little jewel. The, the different approaches are fascinating. And from what you've said, I think you you seem to fall somewhere in, in between. You're, you're instinctive. Yeah. Thinking quite hard about how you're reproducing voices. Yeah, I think, I think that probably is fair. I think, to be honest, the, the kind of the way that I did conceive of it as a younger person and even sort of a couple of years ago compared with the way I would conceive of it now are also different because I think now I'm a bit more interested in caricatures of types of people than I am of specific people and how we can use like impressions as a satirical tool like I find that really interesting I'm also definitely interested in the mechanics of how voices are created in the detail I'd say that's I'm maybe not as preoccupied with that as maybe John, Alistair and, and Rory. But then, you know, that also that's not necessarily my, their careers are, are, are fantastic. But I look at someone like Steve Coogan and just think that's such a cool career path that begun with impressions. That would be the one that I would want to sort of emulate more so than, than kind of doing that, which is also an incredibly valuable pursuit and something they've been absolutely incredible in doing. I was talking to, to Rory. Rory was mentioned Steve Coogan and said that Steve didn't value impressions as, as a high art form and that mm. he always saw himself as an uh, an actor, mm. a guy who could do fantastic characters and to kind of leverage the ability to do voices and sounds and accents within characters rather than impressions. Mm. So, I mean, do you see yourself going into acting more than perhaps stand-up-y voice reproduction? I wouldn't say... I'd- apart from stand-up but I, I just love the idea of doing stand-up as a character I find that really thrilling quite, quite like Steve Coogan did but then also I think my character I get really bored by things quite quickly I like I love doing impressions I, I, I love that side of things but I also like really want to try and do different things with it and maybe I am maybe that probably is a bit similar I probably am a bit similar to Steve Coogan in that in that I'm constantly obsessed with oh but come on but what's it What's it doing? You know, like, what's the thrust of this? Yes, it's a great impression. Yes, that's really good. But what's the sort of, you know, satirical slant? What's the, what's, what's it saying? And that's probably a little bit, again, it's probably incredibly pretentious. And I'm very aware of the pretension of, of someone who classifies himself as a satirist. But yeah, I, I, that's, that's the thing that's really sort of piquing my interest at the moment, I would say. We're coming to the end now. And I, there's a couple of things I wanted to, to do very quickly, but just from a career perspective, mm. you're doing lots and lots of stuff on social media. Where were you in your, your live career? And I mean, I guess, I guess lockdown has put a stop to most of that. Uh, yeah. Where are you headed, you know, if, if and when we get out of lockdown? The weekend before, Probably ill-advisedly, we went ahead with a 
a show at uh, the Leicester Square Theatre, which um, we sold out, which was about 400 seats, which was really fun. And it was just a, a thrill to do that. So I'd love to, I'd love to keep doing that. I love performing live. I mean, it, it's uh, so much fun. And yeah, there are sort of a few TV bits and pieces that kind of I've been writing now uh, in lockdown because I'd love to yeah, create a sort of charactery, satirically type thing. But yeah, I mean, obviously we're in such a, a strange state of flux at the moment. And I think it's uh, encouraged people to be a lot more creative. And, you know, for me, quite a big creative outlet has been social media. And, it, you know, in some ways it's bad, but in other ways it's good because I think it allows people who you make your own work. And if you work really hard at social media, build an audience and try to create, you know, interesting and creative and different content, hopefully you'll gain success. So that's kind of the model I'm operating on. I wish you huge success with that. I don't doubt you will be successful. The last thing I wanted to do was, uh, and I've done this with pretty well everybody, is ask you to teach me uh, an impression. <laughs> uh, I always, at this point, you throw in the disclaimer that, you know, I don't really do impressions anymore and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, I mark myself and I've given my, the highest mark I've managed is a five out of 10. I don't know if there's one that you'd like to particularly like to throw at me. I'd quite like to do Jeremy Vine. I think you could do oh, quite yeah. a good Jeremy Vine. Okay, let's give it a shot. Okay, I'll, I'll, start, I'll start teaching. I think... The thing with Jeremy is that there's quite a few little different elements. So there's, I think, you know, firstly, it's sort of getting that pitch of Jeremy Vine like that. And then Jeremy sort of, Vine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've definitely, yes. Yeah. There's, there's also this sort of uh, speeding up here and then sort of uh, buffering a little bit and then getting to the end of the set. When I hear Jeremy Vine, I, I've said this to Lewis because Lewis was on the show and he, he just blew me away with Jeremy Vine and he did it in lots of different ways. I said to him, to me, it sounds like Jeremy Vine is always on the edge of tears. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I've got to start to talk like Jeremy Vine. And, and, yeah, you've, no. got, you've got it. No, no, no. But I, so I think when you elongated the eye, that wasn't quite right. But no, no. I think the pitch is definitely that. Got to get up, up here somewhere and then go a bit yeah, quicker yeah. a bit more slowly. And yeah. Well, look, I... I'll give myself a five. I'll match my top score. So that's something. I think you've got a really good kernel there that could grow into a wonderful popcorn of Jeremy Vine. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> Josh Berry, this has been great. Where can people find you on the internet and you oh. know, kind of lose themselves in all your brilliant voices? Yeah, I'm probably, uh, probably uh, Twitter and Instagram. So I'm, I'm Josh Berry. Uh, comedy on both on both of those and yeah i mean i'm hopefully going to tour when when this terrible mess is uh, it's over but yeah simon what what a pleasure it's been talking to you thanks for having me on thank you well it's, the pleasure's been mine and i thoroughly enjoyed meeting you you didn't lose me at any point notwithstanding the massive uh, gap between our respective ages so <laughs> thank you so much josh berry for being on i i do urge our listeners to get on the the internet and see what Josh can do because we've only seen a, a snippet of it here and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us and join us next time on Making an Impression. Goodbye. You can subscribe to Making an Impression on all the major podcast platforms and why not leave a review? Follow us on Twitter at Making an Impress One. We've got a Making an Impression Facebook page and our website is www.makinganimpression.net. <laughs>